Welcome back to Camp 8, the podcast about people, forests, and how we connect. This is Kyle Gill here with my co-host, Eli Sagar. Hey, Eli, how are you doing? Hey, Kyle, I'm doing great. Um, what, what have you been thinking about the past couple of weeks? Oh, man. Well, our listeners have heard me mention the National Advanced Silviculture Program. That's, uh, uh, that's finally done. <laughs> it's, it's a program that I uh, have the uh, real pleasure of running with Marcella uh, Windmuller Campioni, our silviculturist down on the St. Paul campus. And it's a great program, national program that brings 30, 36 foresters, I guess, this year from all around the country. Uh, normally brings them to Cloquet. This year, it just brought them onto Zoom. And uh, a little bit of a different program from what we had expected. Uh, a little bit uh, almost well, overwhelming isn't the right word. All-consuming might be a good way to put it. You know, for three days a week, we were on Zoom uh, for a long time. Not not all day, but, uh, and, you know, we did a lot of different things, breakout rooms, and we had students sharing videos from their forests, all, you know, again, all around the country, which was wonderful. And it, it was a good program, but uh, like everything else, just not quite the same. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're... we're were there ways that it forced you into doing new creative things that you didn't expect or that you thought worked really well uh, that you didn't expect? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, and I'm, I'm actually this week grading these things, but Marcella has an assignment that she does with her silviculture uh, students on campus where she has each of them record like a five minute tour, basically virtual tour of a stand and, and describe the stand uh, talk about their objectives and desired future conditions for the stand and talk about a silvicultural prescription to achieve those objectives. And so we had students do the same thing and those were such a highlight, you know, so we have, I'm watching videos of foresters in, you know, five miles from Sonora, Mexico uh, this morning. Um, if I, if I got the name right, you know, totally different ecosystem and just these fascinating stands and stories and silvicultural prescriptions and you know we couldn't do that when we're all together in person but yeah the technology the the, the options we have from te through this technology have have really um opened some doors as well as um constraining things and and kyle you and i did something similar along with some uh, some others this week mm -hmm. too uh, we just just recorded you you uh hosted a cloquet forestry center virtual tour yeah, so this was, we, we ended up, uh, UMD Alumni Association got in touch with us. They're doing this uh, session or series called Bulldogs Behind the Scenes, where they uh, go to various locations in the Duluth area, like Glensheen, Hartley Nature Center, um, and I'm blanking on the other ones, but they asked us to do a virtual tour, and uh, it was like, oh, yeah, sure, because um, we got to work. What was really nice about working with them is that because they had already done their style of tour a couple times, um, that meant that we could learn off of what they've already been learning, and they, the format that they use is having a pre-recorded video and then having live narration and then being able to do live question and answer, and it was... Uh, uh, it was different to get prepared for because we put a storyboard together and did things for the video that were kind of out of the norm. So I was definitely a foot dragger at first because it was like, oh, I don't want really to have to do something new. And then, <laughs> and then I thought, wait, we could actually do tours. We could, I can think about this tour. We can think about the tour and the video that we collect 
in order to do things that we can't actually do in person, like use drone footage and give people a tour from above the canopy or um, to go to sites that are two miles away from each other, um, but we can fly that we can go there basically immediately. So that I, it ended up being uh, really nice to have those constraints of having it be all digital. I don't think it's, there's things you can't do, but it, it was fun to think about the things that we could do and to try and take advantage of um, that space. Yeah, well, you did a great job. It was an interesting, um, it was an interesting kind of program. And, uh, you know, when the video is rolling, I mean, you really needed with your narration to keep on time. And, and I, I was glad to be the one sitting back and, and listening and not, not trying to time my remarks for it. It was, a, it was, I, I agree. I think our uh, 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 friends at UMD really did a nice job. And I think you did a great job recording it. And Thanks. Uh, if, if, if folks are interested, it'll be available on the Cloquet Forestry Center website. We don't have it up there yet, but uh, I think by the time this podcast airs, it should be available. Yeah, it was great to think about uh, thinking at the uh, at a broad view too, because obviously we have really specific projects that are going on, but the audience it was a the specific target audience was UMD alumni, so it's a lot of them maybe don't even know that the Forestry Center exists. So it, um, I we built the narration the narrative out of just looking for ways to give examples of what our mission is, which is to connect people and, and ideas related to um, northern forests and then and to do applied research education and outreach. So it was, uh, it was nice to be able to um, show off some of the forest and have it fit and really help to demonstrate our uh, mission as a forestry center. And we yeah. connected with people from Alaska, from Virginia. I think you said there's even somebody on there from, from Spain. Spain. Yeah. So that, yeah, that, that again, cool. that again is that other like a really cool opportunity to be able to connect with more people that than we actually could ever connect with if we we're only doing that on site. So it's, it's cool to think about the new opportunities that um, we're being forced into to some extent, like podcasting. So we'll get to uh, we'll get to today's episode. I had the great uh, pleasure of interviewing somebody who I think of as kind of a superhero within the uh, Minnesota and national and apparently international uh, forestry community. And uh, without further ado, we'll get to that interview. All right. Well, let's get started with the first question: Who are you, and who do you work for as a forester? Right. Thank you, Kyle. Happy to be here and uh, in the hot seat, as they say. But I am Katie Fernholz. I am president and CEO of Dovetail Partners. Um, and Dovetail Partners is an environmental think tank based in Minneapolis. And I've been there 15, 16 years uh, and loving every minute of it. So, yeah. Are there other groups or councils to, with which you participate? Yes, I do. Um, it's, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. If I, you don't have to list them all, but getting, <laughs> I, this is what I want people to hear is I know there I are know. a few out there. This is almost like when people, when they, they do an acceptance speech and they are afraid of leaving anyone off. That's how I feel right now. But I have had the great privilege and honor to serve in many different capacities. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a trained forester and I've been in forestry about 23 years. And, you know, right after school, I was on a, a committee for developing urban forest management BMPs. I always think of that as my first service 
and that was so stimulating. And so maybe that's why I got addicted. But um, currently, I'm very proud of being uh, chair of the American Forest Foundation Board of Trustees, a national organization that represents family forest owners and is the parent organization for Tree Farm. So very happy to be chair of that. I am also an environmental representative, governor appointed environmental representative for the Minnesota Forest Resources Council. And I was on the council prior in my career as well. But I've been involved with the Sustainable Biomass Partnership. I'm a member of the Forest Stewardship Council, have been on Sustainable Forestry Initiative, SFI's External Review Committee, and I'm currently chairing their task group on urban forestry standards. I was on AFF's Woodland Operating Committee. See, I, I'm just gonna stop there because I know I'm forgetting others, but I do think service, I just really enjoy you know, being in service to the profession and especially these dynamic groups that come together to tackle challenges and opportunities. So I've put a lot of work into that, uh, both within Minnesota and the region and also, also nationally. And it's something I'm very proud of and have been honored to be a part of. So for people who are potentially interested in doing service but are um, unsure about how to go about it, will you just give us some uh, logistics and how do you balance what you get paid for with uh, your service because I imagine you're not getting paid for service so you're basically having you're either wrapping that into your position or you're doing it uh, in your free time outside of your regular work for Dovetail. Exactly it's a very good point yeah so Dovetail is a nonprofit, um, and so we do have to balance you know the things that are supported by our grants and agreements and our sponsors as well as you know the things that help build our influence and uh, keep us engaged. And so I know one of the things I forgot to mention was being Minnesota SAF chair. I did that <laughs> shortly after college as well. And I bring that up because that to me is one of the first steps. If you want to be able to work uh, in, in these dialogues is you've got to get involved with those professional organizations. SAF is the first door to being connected to uh, the profession and the, and the thinking around forestry and natural resource management today. So I always think that's a first step. And that SAF involvement is a good balance because it's one where you get a lot out of it, uh, even if you're not able to find the time to participate in committees or leadership roles, you get all the professional information and access to that network. So that's one way to balance things is to look at what you get in return, you know, for the time you're able to put in. But I think over time, it's, it's looking for the, you know, the ways that we stay engaged and informed. So for me, balancing things, you know, I'm looking for opportunities to lend my leadership and to be influential. And it's certainly it was my involvement in many of these different activities uh, substitutes as marketing for Dovetail. You know, people see who I am and hear what Dovetail's doing. And so it does help build awareness and our reputation as well. But it is a balancing act. I mean, you have to be, be judicious. For me, the big thing is I always look at what is the time commitment? Is it two-year terms with two-time two term limits? Okay, then I can, I can wrap my head around it. But I definitely, that's part of how I gauge things is what exactly is the time commitment and the expectations. But uh, try to take on at least a couple things each year that put me in a, in a leadership position. The expectations piece is probably big. My guess is knowing you, you're, you're a forward person and willing to just say, hey, what, what am I getting into? So that, that's been key to knowing how to say yes or no. Because uh, I imagine tons of requests come your way and you have to 
potentially break people's hearts. Luckily, you didn't break my heart when I asked <laughs> you to do this interview. Uh, uh, but yeah, how? What's your strategy for other? What's your strategy then for um, getting to people's expectations for what they're requesting of you? Yeah, and I think you know it, I've gotten better at it over time. I would say in the early days, you, you know, when you're just kind of learning how to navigate some of that. It, it can be difficult to kind of make sure you're on the same page with what somebody's expecting. But it, it is what you said, Kyle, you just got to ask the blunt questions and be clear about what you know or don't know. And, and that means, you know, if it's a, if it's an organization you're not familiar with, say, Hey, tell me what's, what is this organization? What are these, what are the goals of this committee? Does this committee have a strategic plan? You know, what are, like I said, what are the terms or the, the time expectations you know, it, it, you really just have to ask enough questions until you know that you have a clear picture of how it's going to fit into your, your work-life balance and your other responsibilities. But that's my strongest advice is before taking on and saying yes to things, just ask those clarifying questions and make sure you, you have a clear picture in your mind. And, and, um, and it also helps if, if you know some of the other people you're going to be working with, because then you can ask those questions, not just of the person who's recruiting you, but maybe some other colleagues that have been involved with that effort and can give you their perspective. But sometimes you have to ask questions for quite a while. Um, and sometimes the right answer is, I don't know enough or not right now, circle back to me in six months. And there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. I think it's really important for people to recognize that um, saying yes when you're not in a capacity to really live up to it, you're not doing anybody any favors. So just, just practice in your mind only saying yes when you're really ready to do it and, and meet your own expectations for what you want to get out of it. I mean, just live up to your own expectations and how you're going to feel good about what you're doing. And, and yeah, saying yes when you're not ready. Yeah, you're not doing anybody any favors, especially not yourself. So practice saying no, stand in front of the mirror, say no a few times. But when you, when you do things where you're really ready for them, it's so much more rewarding for everybody. And so, yeah, make sure that you're saying yes, really, you know, from your heart and your mind. So what does it mean to you to be a forester and what inspired you to follow the career path of a forester? Yeah, this is a, you know, what it means to be a forester, I think is a really an evolving question. And I think for me, it always has been and increasingly is about the human connection to the forest. I just, I, you know, it's, it's such a hard thing to describe because on the one hand, I mean, I don't believe the world revolves around people. You know what I'm saying? We're just part of the world. But at the end of the day, if people aren't happy and healthy and resilient and thriving, then nothing else really can. So the world isn't all about us, but we do have to care for ourselves in a way that we have the energy and resources to then care for the rest of the world. So I do find the work of forestry today increasingly needs to be human centric in that we're thinking about communities and the voices and equity and engagement of all of the people that are affected by forests and all of the ways that forests that people affect forests. So and in, in terms of coming into forestry, um, the short answer is always that I grew up on a farm. I mean, if I have literally two seconds to tell somebody why I'm a forester, oh, I grew up on a farm. Boom. End of story. So why didn't you become a farmer? <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah, exactly. Because there's always more, story, more questions that come from that. Because yes, I grew up on a farm and it made me comfortable with the outdoors and curious about, you know, just comfortable in that, that external environment. But I also grew up on a, a certified organic farm. 
a farm that was transitioning to organic while I was growing up. So I was very engaged at a very personal level uh, within my family around questions of sustainability, environmental responsibility, and, and, and responsible management of the land and, and how we interact with the land to produce the things that we need. And then I also grew up with a family that camped and I would go to forests, hiking and camping. And I was so intrigued by how different forests are and campgrounds are from farms. I mean, come on, you'll never mistake a cornfield for a, you know, it's, they're, they're just dramatically different environments. And I found that so stimulating as a child, like, what is this? This is so different than a farm in the prairie region of, of Minnesota where I grew up. And then also the other part of that is I was a very much an environmentalist growing up. I was like many people, you know, I was uh, in the late 70s and 80s, you know, very concerned about the environment, just like I think many generations have been, and really wanted to study something and work on something where I thought I could help fix and heal the environment. And lastly, I grew up on a farm during a time when the farm economy was being devastated. Uh, neighbors were being foreclosed on. It was a horrible time to be um, within a farming community in terms of the social economic uh, struggles. And it was a time when parents and um, guidance counselors were telling high school students, you need, to, you need to move on. Your future is not in this farming community. So all of those factors pushed me into forestry. You know? So yes, it's because I grew up on a farm, but it was the type of farm it was the time that I was living in and it were the economic pressures, all those things pushed me into forestry. So, and at the heart of it, I just, I love trees. And it, for me, going to forestry school was about just learning about something I, I loved, not knowing what I was going to do with that love, uh, but just knowing it. I've always um, been attracted to that. One of those definitions of love, which is the desire to understand something or someone that is an expression of love. And that's how I would describe my love for the forest is really a desire to understand and to have a deeper relationship with it. I'm, I'm curious about your family making the decision to do organic farming and what, what that says about your family culture and kind of how that influenced you was that do you um, were you aware enough oh, of yes. when they were making that decision of why they decided to go to that direction oh yes yeah. so, uh, very aware because the great saying in our family is they decided to or go organic the year i was born so all that chemical use was fine for my older siblings but oh when i came along we needed to <laughs> i'm teasing but that's that's the joke so yes i i know very well exactly when this transition started and um was very much involved because uh you know, farming is a family activity, and I would say that sustainable, organic, and regenerative farming is even more of a family activity um, in the sense of the types of decisions and hands-on management that needs to occur. It's definitely a family activity. But the funny thing um, with my, my, fa my family's farm, still, uh, still operational, it's now a partnership with uh, our, the four kids and our parents, and it's still certified organic, and it's been more than 40 years that parts of the farm have been certified organic. It took a long time for all of the acreage to be enrolled, but the, the certification goes back more than 40 years. And the funny thing about it is some people think, oh, you must have gone organic because of all kinds of environmental issues. And sure, yeah, environmental concerns contributed. But at the end of the day, um, our family's decision, primarily my parents, my father and mother, their decision to go organic was an economic decision. Um, it came down to a growing season when... Um, there was a choice to either go into debt 
to buy the inputs that would be necessary for non-organic farming or to forego using those inputs. And so the choice for that planting season was to do without rather than to go into debt. And that goes deep into my family in terms of uh, the influence of the Great Depression and the influence of other farm economic crises in history and just an aversion to going into debt during the planting season. And um, I think, you know, many small business owners and farmers can relate to that choice. But the bottom line is because of economic reasons, do without and try out a different system of management. And the funny thing that happens with organic transition is the first year is real easy. <laughs> you have carryover from, you know, weed control. So the first year you're like, oh, no problem. Why doesn't everybody do it this way? Well, then in subsequent years, you start to really see this, the, weed, the weed seed bank kind of express itself. You start to see differences in soil fertility in some fields and this kind of thing. But bottom line, the economic choice to, to move in a direction with fewer inputs and, and, and reduced financial risk was a, a big part of the decision. And, uh, and then for our family, it, it transitioned into like a on-farm experiment because organic and regenerative agriculture is a very intimate relationship with the land, with crop rotations, examining your soils, looking at soil temperatures and planting dates. And, you know, it's, it's different than other types of non-organic farming where you kind of, you follow a set of kind of uh, structure. So it, I think that's part of why our family stuck with it, you know, and I've talked with my, my father and mother about this many times in terms of what motivated them and, and why they stuck with it. But there was that motivation of um, economic security and resiliency within the farm. And then also just that invitation to manage the farm in a very direct and personal and customized way. Bespoke, isn't that the word? It's bespoke farming. <laughs> <laughs> What are the lessons you feel like you've taken into how you view forests and forestry and forest management from that process of, of what your family has gone through and having it be economically based? I'm, I'm surprised to hear that it was an economic decision because I think so much of the time we think of the environmental or sustainability being the big decision. It sounds like even within you, there, is a there maybe is or was a balance between the economics and the kind of the other ideals, the ethical ideal? Uh, or how have you translated your understanding of cultural relationship to land in farming to cultural relationship to land in forestry? The things that I've translated from farming and forestry and bringing that together in my own mind and, and understanding is, first of all, for me, forestry is just so dramatically different. I mean, farming is, you know, it's, it's, farming is beautiful and it is all about soil and the land and, and meeting our needs and sustaining that productivity, but it's not natural. There's, I mean, the, the, the crops we grow are not native. I mean, so there's just that complete distinction between forestry and farming or even forestry and gardening in my mind. And, and so the, the thing I, I hold so dearly in forestry is that basis in nature and ecology and native species and biodiversity and keeping all the parts like Aldo Leopold has told us. So that distinction of forestry is so meaningful and is at the heart of how I view forestry, that it is, it is rooted in naturalness. And I think farming has opportunities to embrace more of that, 
but I, it's hard for me to picture farming ever coming close to that naturalness of forestry. I mean, we may have gathering and foraging in our food system, but, but forestry is rooted in naturalness. And that for me is very meaningful and it's a touchstone. The other thing I always think about within forestry and, and how I view it and in the context of my farm perspective is that it's okay to make mistakes. In our relationship with the land, yes, we should be cautious and thoughtful, um, but we should also be willing to try and, and engage in ways that, that push ourselves to gain understanding and where we'll actually see a new response from nature. And so, you know, because that's, that's farming. Farming, you, you know, far, the culture of farming is you get this, especially in Minnesota, you get this little growing season. So yes, you, you apply everything you, you learned last year and all the years before, but every growing season is a little different. So you might plant a little later, a little deeper, a little more shallow, the rains might. So in farming, there's constant experimentation because you get this little window to try and get it right. And I think in forestry, because of our longer time frames, we're not always willing to experiment in the same ways because we think what we do is so permanent. And I would push foresters to, yeah, you don't throw it all out the window and get crazy, but find those places for experimentation because we need to keep learning. And recognize that uh, sometimes we think we have more control than we do and we're actually making mistakes that are very good for the forest or sometimes what we think we're doing doesn't actually work out. Yeah, that's <laughs> great wisdom. Uh, so what does, me, what does being a forester look like for you on a daily or seasonal basis? Yeah, okay. my joke about what a forester means for me is, um, <laughs> there's two jokes. One is sometimes being a forester means sitting in a windowless basement in two-day <laughs> conferences. And I do, I, I very proudly say that I am a forester, not just because that's my training, but because I see my day-to-day -day job as advocating for the forest and for the forest product sector in terms of the innovation and the, and the need for economic you know, engagement in our forest, but I see myself as advocating for the sustainability of forest resources and, and the forest environment and, and with the voice of a forester, not just advocating because I care about it or something else, but advocating from a place of knowledge and training and experience. And so, yeah, forestry, being a forester can mean sitting in a windowless conference room. Uh, the other joke I have is one of my favorite bands. This is in the category too much information, but first aid kit has this opening line where, you know, running through the moss in high heels or something. So, and oh, cause the opening line is when I grow up, I want to be a forester. That's why it's one of my favorite anthems. But anyway, there's that line, you know, it says when I grow up, I want to be a forester running through the moss in high heels. That's the line. And, and that's, I always thought if I would redo my Instagram handle, that's what I would call myself, the forester in high heels. And so, so it is, I mean, forestry, you know, this is what we need to be a robust profession and to be able to advocate effectively for the full potential of forests and forest resources. We need to have all hands on deck. Uh, from, you know, whoever's in the feller buncher out there doing the inventory, marking the trees, you know, hauling the logs, making the products, writing the policies. We need all hands on deck to really advocate for the full potential of forest resources, especially today when forests and forest products have so much to offer for climate change and circular economy. And so, I, like I said, I call myself a forester. Somebody might criticize me because my high heels don't have any marking paint on them. 
but I, I, I feel very strongly that, that I am part of the forest sector and a critical part of it, and that all of us that work outside of the forest contribute to just securing the future of this sector. So for you on a, on a daily basis, does that mean, um, you're, I mean, you're primarily in meetings and primarily doing stuff that's mostly office-based, right? Do you, or do you balance that with some outdoor work? Yeah, it's, I mean, for the last however many years, it's been primarily office-based. I mean, for many years in my career, the balance was I did a lot of forest certification auditing. And that got me out in the field and on all kinds of different forest management operations, primarily in the United States. But I had the opportunity to audit uh, public lands, private lands, tribal forest management operations, uh, family forest operations, the whole range, and with diverse forest certification systems and, and this kind of thing. So I used to do a lot, my field work uh, for many years was, was that kind of work. And I, that gave me a, a great deal of perspective on forest management across the country and under different ownerships. But more recently, yeah, it's, it's meetings and Zoom meetings, especially in the <laughs> most recent era. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the way it goes. And, and the meetings, I think what I enjoy is, um, like I said, many of the, the projects I work on now are organizations that are really involved in the future of the forest sector and innovation within our forest products and materials and also innovation around forest management, whether it's, you know, management for climate mitigation. But I, so these, they may be in windowless conference rooms once in a while, but really stimulating, thoughtful conversations. And you get a chance to go all across the country, right? In your, in your various roles, um, both the dovetail and for the boards that you're on. Uh, or is that all around the world too at this point? A little bit. I mean, I do a little bit of international work uh, through the UN and FAO and the UN Economic Commission for Europe, do a little bit of work with their offices out of Geneva and Rome. Um, so most of the time when I've done international work, it's primarily with European colleagues. Um, but otherwise, most of my travel when we were all traveling was, was domestic. And that has given me a chance to, to see the differences in different regions of the U.S. and where they're at with some of their... Um, forest management and forest products investment. I'm, I want to paint the picture for our listeners that we've got Katie sitting outside her farm farmhouse in uh, the in Crystal, Minnesota. Oh, you know, I just this little UN work that I was doing on the side here. <laughs> well, it's, it's been, you, you, know, you forgot yeah. to mention the UN is as part of the groups yeah. that you were a part of at the beginning. But with the UN, the forestry um, division at the UN is really an amazing group of people. And they have done the global, you know, forest resource assessment work for decades. Um, and, and I will say this, I mean, it's um, because for, since 2010, I've been involved with the annual forest products market review that's produced by the FAO UNECE uh, forestry division. And uh, we look globally at, at forest products and I, I work on the, the section related to environmental policies and the policies that impact forests and forest products, including certification, green building, all of those types of initiatives. But I think the thing that, for people to really understand, um, you know, forestry within the UN is, is really important because there is a global recognition of the importance of forests and forest products. I mean, people might think, oh, the UN's all about peacekeeping or something, but the UN really looks at these strategic global issues. And so of course, food, is within the UN and FAO, but forestry has a long history within the UN and the work of um, the different teams 
at FAO and, and UNECE. And so, yeah, very proud to be a part of it. Um, my dear colleague, Dr. Jim Boyer, roped me into it uh, years ago, and I'm eternally grateful to him for, for thinking of me as, as a person who could contribute to that work. Will you remind me what FAO stands for? You see, the, the, I always say FAO or FO because uh, it, it, it translates differently. Food and Agriculture Organization is the way we, we say it generally in English, but FAO, Food and Agriculture Organization. Okay. Uh, so what would you say have been, or what is the favorite or most memorable prescription or project that you've either developed or implemented or been a part of? Oh, the most memorable project. Well, my short answer is I hope it's yet to come because I think there is so much on the horizon. I've said this to many colleagues. I think this is the most exciting time to be in forestry in the last hundred years. I mean, we've had lots of good times over the last hundred years with forestry doing wonderful things, but my goodness, I'm, I'm so excited about where we are. But to date, um, you know, this is a strange answer, I suppose, but, um, Probably one of the projects that tested me the most and that I'm really most proud of is the work that Dovetail did with colleagues, um, many partners, on the, the Northwoods ATV uh, regional trail system yeah, that includes Aiken County, Itasca County, Cass County. Uh, at the time, it started as a 70-mile trail project, um, but we did that project at a time when motorized recreation was very controversial but coming together with colleagues and with the leadership of Mark Jacobs, who was land commissioner of Aiken County at the time, um, what we recognized was this is a, a land management, a resource management challenge. And we need to rise to the occasion. We need to sit down and figure it out. How can we accommodate evolving demands and uses uh, in a way that aligns with values and protecting the resource for the long-term and sustainability and those kinds of things. And I was very proud to be asked to participate, to be able to contribute to that project, facilitating the work of the committee and the stakeholder engagement. And I'm proud of the trail system that developed. Um, certainly there are always ongoing challenges with managing recreation and user groups and impacts and, and you have to continually monitor it. I mean, it's just like any other land use. But I, that project was a it's just one of those in your career when you get the chance to really try and influence the path that something's on. And it was challenging, and, um, but I'm, I'm proud of that project and, uh, and, and the team that came together to accomplish that project. What were the big challenges there? I, you know, the big challenges around motorized recreation and trail development at that time, uh, I mean, frankly, there was a push in the state to ban ATV recreation, that it, there was a viewpoint that this just cannot be accommodated, that we can't, that this has no place within our forest management. Um, and in that, it, many of us just thought that was unrealistic to expect that there would be a ban. I believe strongly that in greater, the greater likelihood would be that we would have to find a way to responsibly manage this recreation and it would be better to start answering that question uh, sooner rather than later, rather than letting some of the, the conflict continue. Because the state was going through a process of de designating trails and, and all of this kind of mapping exercise. But it was recognized that for many other user groups, they had ded dedicated trail systems. And that was part of what was lacking for ATVs and OHVs was really not just, well, you can use some of these existing routes, but really, is there a dedicated system that's been designed for that user group considering their needs and expectations? And that's what we were trying to do is, is say, okay, if, if, we, if we consider that this recreation opportunity 
um, can be responsibly managed, then we also have to think about how you design specifically for it and, and what parts of the landscape and at what scale can we do that responsibly. And it, it's my understanding that you all were able to tie together, a big success was tying together a bunch of the trail networks that were already there, right? So was, was it a matter of then finding the connections between those separate systems? Exactly. We were able to leverage existing or proposed routes across, you know, some state and county lands and this kind of thing. So it, it, what was nice about that is we were able to just create a, a larger network because part of what we wanted to encourage were um, the, the types of motorized recreation that we then were able to associate with trail towns where you would have the economic development where it's a whole network and you can do, you know, a, you know, a day long trip or, you know, a, a, a trip where you might go out and stop somewhere for lunch or whatever else and, you know, make a day of it. Um, similar to what we see with snowmobile routes where the snowmobile routes are tied into resorts, they're tied into, you know, services within communities, those kinds of things. That was the model we really wanted to support. Your neighbors are motorcyclists? Is that what yes. you're <laughs> Yes, and I should say, uh, this is, a, I think, Kyle, you may have said this is a farmhouse in Crystal. It's not, a, it's very much a suburban, you know, yeah, I, <laughs> okay. I, I, I'm guessing you've heard the train. I know I've heard the <laughs> train that's about, you know, a half mile away, an airplane. And yes, the, the motorcyclist that uh, he may be late for work this morning or something, but he's in <laughs> he's a hurry. getting there quickly. <laughs> exactly. uh, I, I really liked the first part of your answer to that most memorable project so uh, do a little bit of futurism for us if if you had um opportunity to to do anything that you would want to consider your most favorite project what in the future what would that look like or what would oh, that be yeah this is this will expose my great fantasies and dreams for the forest sector you know, I, I just think the possibilities are, are nearly endless of what we can do in the forest sector for the next generation. And when I think of things that are um, very doable, I, I'm, I don't know if others accuse me of this. I may just accuse myself of this, of being optimistic to the point of delusion, but, you know, I, I go with it. But I, I think there's an opportunity for us, I mean, to me, low-hanging fruit is for us to really look at how forests are addressed within the farm bill. So much progress has been made on strengthening the forest provisions of the farm bill. And I think we can go further with that and keep pushing that as a major national policy that impacts uh, forest owners as well as forest products and, and markets. So the farm bill to me is a target for the forest sector to uh, really look at how we keep the, there's a whole forest in the farm bill coalition. And it's a wonderful group of people that have continued to enhance the forest section of the farm bill. But broader than that, um, you know, I think the other kind of policy areas I want to see forest strengthen in as, as state and federal level, all of the climate, uh, climate change policies and climate commitments that really should embrace forests and forest products, including uh, biomass energy to a much more strategic and thoughtful degree. I think too many of our climate change policies are silent or miss the full perspective of forestry within them. So if I could wave a magic wand, I would, I would change a lot of our, our climate change policies and goals to embrace forests and forest products more strategically. Um, and I think then the, the third thing I'd say in terms of a big grand vision of what I think is possible, it, it goes to the human and social dimensions of forestry. And one of the things I've really enjoyed over my forestry career is watching the continual progression of urban forestry as um, a recognized and valued dimension of forestry. 
And I think that's, uh, it's so valuable for so many reasons. Um, For the forest, it's important that we are able to think across the landscape. The forest doesn't end somewhere in Anoka County, (laughs) as an example for the Twin Cities. But I mean, it is a landscape. I mean, migratory birds come through the Twin Cities and the Flyway and the Mississippi, and then they make their way up to Itasca County and, you know, St. Louis County. So these things are connected on the landscape, and they should be connected in our thinking as foresters, in our profession, in our policies, in our goals. Just all of our conversations should be embracing that. And it it also, the, the product side of it, utilizing urban wood materials, not wasting that material, to me is so fundamental to completing our relationship with the land, that we really recognize that trees, wherever they grow, whether it's, you know, many trees my husband and I have planted in our yard or trees in northern Minnesota, we need to value that material. We need to incorporate it in our lives and, and we need to um, not, not waste it and not treat it as, as, a, as, a, as a disposable good. So I, when, I, when I look, my, my dream going forward is that I've described this to some other colleagues, that when you would cite a, a new forest products uh, facility somewhere and you would draw your, you know, your sourcing area, you know, your radius, that you'd include the urban area. That you don't, if you draw a 30 mile radius, hey, you don't just, you don't cut out that urban area. You would also have inventory information from that urban area, supply, transportation. You'd have some concept of, hey, could that be part of my sourcing area? And if not, why not? What other information might I need or what other systems might be needed to support that? But I think in the next generation, my big hope is that the traditional forest industry and the urban forest industry will, will really marry up in some new and creative ways because I think they need each other to, to get to the next level in so many of the things we, we want to accomplish. And so I've, wa- I've, I've been very encouraged by how that progression has continued, but I think there's a couple of key steps that still need to happen to really realize the full potential. And, and that has incredible impacts for, for human and social dimensions and environmental equity that will also come from that. So that's, that's what are the what are those steps? I know you're a pra- you're a dreamer, but you're a pra- practical person as well. So, what would you see as those steps that uh, the average forester, whether urban or rural forester, uh, what can they what should they be thinking about, um, and how to take those steps? To me, one of the first steps is that many of the systems that are currently separate between forestry, traditional forestry, rural forestry, and urban forestry need to come together. So and this is really pointing fingers, name and names, but I could see a day where, um, you know, our industry associations include urban wood companies. I mean, Minnesota has Wood from the Hood, an incredibly uh, well-recognized urban forest products company. Couldn't they be part of, of some of our industry conversations, you know, or, you know, some Minnesota Forest Resources Council? Is there a time in the future where, uh, representatives from the Minneapolis Park and Rec Board could have a role there. And I'm very cautious about saying these things because I know for a lot of people, it sounds like, ooh, we're going to divide the pie or there's going to be competition or whatever else. Or, or, you know, I mean, I come from a farm. My family lives in rural areas. And I understand the idea that, oh, we're going to shift power to urban areas and rural areas. Their, their power is going to be diminished. So I understand we have to be cautious about how we open things up and just start you know, changing things for the sake of change. But that would be to me one of the first steps is what are the systems that we have uh, that could be better integrated 
So conversations for forestry are inclusive across all of those dimensions. And it won't work everywhere all the time, but I think you know, that can happen within academia and research, within practice. We're seeing that like with the US Forest Service, they have urban forest inventory and analysis, urban FIA now. And so it's not the same, but it's designed to interact in a way where you can bring that information together. So that's to me the first step, is looking at systems and integrating our systems. So th this brought up a really interesting question to me that I want to get your perspective on. Um, cultural perspectives on things are very important to me. So I'm wondering if, you, if you've seen any similarities or differences on the cultural perspective of, of utilizing urban versus rural wood sources. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the urban forestry and urban wood utilization, uh, it's very interesting. And I, um, in terms of some of the cultural differences, I, um, yeah, this, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult to, thing to explain. Uh, but there are, certainly we see within urban wood makers and practitioners a sense that what they're doing is different than commercial forestry. And one of the common sayings in urban wood utilization is that uh, we utilize trees that were not removed for their commercial value. And as a trained forester, that, I always pause at that statement because it sounds like it's vilifying economic value. And I think economic value is very important for sustaining the things we want to sustain. If something's not valuable, it's very difficult to keep it in, unless you... You know, I mean, there's other ways to keep things, but economic incentives are incredibly effective. So, but that, but within urban wood utilization, this idea that urban makers utilize trees that weren't removed for their commercial value is an important statement of ethics for many urban wood makers and practitioners that want to break free from what they view as the exploitation of forest resources. And and I respect that greatly because that is an emotional connection to what they want to see in the world and a meaningful connection. I also think it is the point of the greatest healing that can happen when traditional rural forestry and urban forestry comes together and where we can have a conversation about how much has changed in forestry and how much we're on the same journey together to avoid exploitation and to focus on sustainability and focus on restoration. And so I think traditional and rural forestry has come a long way in that, that there are very few examples of forest management that is purely an economic driver. Um, I, I mean, forest management by and large uh, considers very, very many ecological and social considerations within management. Forestry in, in the United States would look very different if it was purely a, a economic motivation in, in all instances. But on the urban side, what's been interesting that happened this year as pushing the needle from that dimension is uh, Taylor Guitar has come out with a whole line of guitars made with urban wood. And one of the statements made from the CEO of Taylor Guitar was, we really, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but the, the basis of his statement was, we also think it's important for cities to consider the trees they plant and the long-term economic value of the species they choose. <laughs> and I thought that was a beautiful statement. Because from my viewpoint is, um, you know, if a city, you know, just like we have school trust lands or other, you know, ways that rural forests feed into our public systems, why couldn't a city park plant trees 
with the knowledge that in 20, 40, 50 years, they're going to be commercially valuable. Those proceeds will go into our schools or our healthcare system or environmental education, whatever it is. And I, that to me is a beautiful vision of where we can go across the landscape, that trees are valued, not exploited, but that trees are valued in thoughtful, meaningful ways for generations to come. I, and I think there's a, lot, there's a lot of work that can be done there, and, but there is this healing that needs to happen in terms of some of the viewpoints of practitioners, both within the rural and the urban landscape, in terms of not wanting to turn trees into a commodity and this commercial good, that we still want to see them as unique and special and valued for other reasons. I'm, I'm appreciate that response because that's kind of what I was thinking, but you helped to clarify to me that I think part of our, um, part of how we define economic forestry within our culture is that it is exploitative and that, that um, they, I feel like we use economic and exploitative as the same thing, but we know as foresters, that's not actually the case. So that, that clarification on that, I, I think that's, I mean, that's yes. what I, I feel like you were saying, and it kind of became clear to me that we, we equate exploitation with economic forestry. That's an yep. interesting cultural thing that we're still working around because it was exploitative at, um, during the cutover period and yes. early portions of forestry. Uh, not one of the typical five questions, but we've got we've got uh, one more of the of the set questions. This has been awesome, Katie. Thank you. Thank you. What what would you say? So you talked about a couple of challenges and successes with a specific project. What would you say have been your biggest successes and challenges during your career? So more broadly speaking. Yeah, successes and challenges. I am one of those people that I, I you know I try not to dwell on the things I'd like to change, you kind of, kind of keep pushing forward. So I'm, I'm very proud of the work that I've done. I mean, in terms of successes, I think I've been able to um, be in the right place at the right time to have some critical conversations, uh, whether it's, you know, some of the topics I've worked on around family forestry or certification, uh, increasingly nowadays around carbon, um, but just positioning myself to be in a, in a place where I can deliver information and insight because I, I make, uh, I, I'm really committed to staying informed about what's going on in the forest sector and trying to bring that information and, and make people aware of some of the information that, that I see and, and, and providing access so other people can, can apply that information in their situation. That's a lot of what Dovetail does with our newsletter and our reports is try and just, just deliver information and not tell people what to do with it or think about it, but make it accessible and then people can digest it and apply it in their own situation. In terms of um, you know, challenges, I mean, bluntly, this won't come as a surprise. It's, it hasn't been easy to be a woman in forestry. Um, you know, it's, I, I, and it's not, it, it's one of those things. I have been supported by so many colleagues uh, throughout the years. So it's not as if I've been, um, you know, I, it, it's not as if there's been these direct hardships or some, you know, it's just this overall sense of, uh, you know, when you're the odd one out, <laughs> you know, you walk into a room and you just feel like which one doesn't belong. And I've had a lot of those experiences in my career where I am the only one in the room that looks like me. And um, that just takes a lot of energy. And it takes, you know, you really have to double down on your own self-support systems because you, you just feel that extra strain of being different. And, um, and, and, and I will... I'll say, you know, there are times when that can be an asset, sure. 
but the vast majority of the time, it just takes a little bit more energy to get through the day when you feel like you're kind of, um, you know, just different and um, you don't feel that same level of support because the people in the room don't look like you. And so that's been challenging, but I will say that uh, I think there's a growing recognition in forestry uh, and more broadly than forestry of the need for gender and racial inclusion. And I really hope we continue to make progress on that. It's something I care very deeply about, about supporting uh, colleagues that are, are looking for support uh, as they pursue their career. Especially, I mean, one of the challenges for women is, um, is when they have children, it really impacts their ability to engage in forestry. And I chose not to have children. And I can very directly see the differences that has created for me. And it's a very sensitive topic for men and women to talk about. Uh, but child rearing is not equally shared in our society. And I've seen so many female forestry colleagues that leave the profession when they have children, that they just can't balance that. Um, or at best, best, their career plateaus, and they had such potential for leadership, and they're not able to realize that when their uh, work-life balance changes. And I think that is, um, it's personally devastating to see that happen to individuals that have to make those hard choices, but it diminishes the profession significantly. We've lost uh, really good people that had a great deal to give to forestry. And, um, and we need to change that. We need to find ways to support people, all people, um, you know, men and women, gender and racial diversity, we need to support that because the profession, forestry is wonderful. It's a wonderful profession, but it can be even better. And it will be better when we have that, that diversity of gender and race and other measures of diversity really accounted for. And I, that to me is very exciting, but it has been very personal throughout my career to really uh, acknowledge some of that hurt and some of that loss that occurs in forestry because we haven't made the changes we need to make. Logistically, how do you, because um, I know we're gonna, we're, we have people that are listening that have probably faced that same um, sense of isolation and walking into the room being like, oh, I'm different from everybody else here. Uh, what logistic, are there any logistic um, tips you can give people that are feeling like uh, feeling the same way that you felt uh, as you walk into different rooms or different workshops or other things? Yeah, I, you know, I would say a couple things is, um, you know, when you have that feeling of, you know, not having the support, I, the, my biggest thing is I don't, I don't know that it's possible to fully support yourself just by yourself. I think, you know, for me in my career, Part of how I've been able to find, you know, find the energy to get through those long days and, and feel strong in those situations and still uh, find my voice and be able to speak up even when I feel uh, like a minority or like I'm the odd one out in the room is because I have an incredible uh, first and foremost husband who, um, I mean, it isn't, it isn't a myth that, you know, people that are able to live up to their potential usually have great people behind them that support them. Um, my husband is a forester. His training is in urban forestry. Um, and he's been an incredible support. And, and then beyond that, you know, family and friends. So I think my, my biggest thing is people that find themselves in that situation and feel run down. I think the instinct is to say, oh, I got to just dig deeper into myself. And somehow I can be strong enough to do this. 
and that, that might be possible. And there were certainly times in my career where I had to just turn inward. But I think people also have to be honest that you're going to have to create a support network within your career and within your personal life, you know, to be surrounded with good people that believe in you and will see you through this. It, so I, I think that it's just one of the mistakes people think that, oh, it's just me. I just got to be tougher. Um, okay, you know, but, but don't, don't dwell on that. I mean, we can all, you know, do self-improvement. Um, but it really is important to create the community around you. And the other part of it, real bluntly, is it, it isn't, the thing I've learned the most in my career, it isn't, it isn't all about me. There are people you will encounter that it, they are the problem. And thinking that every time you're in a situation, so, somehow, oh, I should have done this, or I could have fixed this, or if only I would have. No, 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 no. It isn't all you. Sometimes it's them. <laughs> so, so don't, you know, and, and remind yourself about that. You're not the center of the universe. You're the center of your life, and that's it. But, but all the good and bad that happens in the world doesn't all relate back to something you should or shouldn't have done. So take a deep breath, let it go, but recognize many times you can't, you can't control everything. It, and you can control your own reactions, but you can't control other people's um, intentions or other people's re other people's methods and engagement so you know just don't don't beat yourself up and and build that network that's going to support you and and it's the people closest to you you know your your partner in life or your dearest friends that you really need to let hear your struggles and let them really be the friends and loved ones that they want to be for you invite them into those things and and express the, the things you need from them Another logistics question, how do we improve um, spaces for diversity and inclusion? So not only for women who maybe want to be foresters, but also want to have kids and want to balance that and men who want to have kids and yes. still want to be foresters um, and, and people of various cultural backgrounds. What are, what would you say are practical steps that we can take to um, being better at um, celebrating diversity and inclusion? You know, I think, there, there are many steps to be taken, um, and, it's, and it's a whole process, and, and, and there's significant change that can come out of that process. But in terms of the initial steps, to me, there's a lot of good news here. First of all, there's incredible resources out there. We don't have to, like, dream it up within forestry. And a lot of, a lot of stuff is underway. I mean, we've come a long ways, and there's a lot of progress and awareness and, and resources available. So, I think we can each do things at a very individual level, which it literally comes down to kind of doing your homework. I mean, whether it's, you know, training, reading books, whatever it is, but, but as individuals, we can improve our understanding and our practice of how we, we value uh, diversity and inclusion. So there are individual things that we can do. Do you hear the plane that time? Yeah. <laughs> Because there's, there's the Crystal Airport right over here. So anyway, so, you know, there's things we can do personally and individually to just, just to, to reinforce within ourselves that this is personally important. So you can start with yourself and the things you want to do. And there's, I mean, literally, I, you know, I don't mean this to be facetious or dismissive, but I would tell people, just go Google, what can I do to support diversity and inclusion? Seriously. If you Google, what can I do? What can I personally do? You will get a world of resources and they're very good resources. So it is that simple. Um, and it's very similar if you are in a position of managing an organization. 
you just start Googling, what can my organization, what can my university, what can my private company, I mean, seriously, that's the, the good news is the resources are out there. They're available for that first step of awareness, understanding, and looking for opportunities. The second good news is um, there are lots of women leaders that are, that are out there, and there are a lot of people of color that are leaders uh, within natural resources and forestry. And it's a matter of figuring out where are those conversations occurring and how can those conversations intersect. And so there are organizations uh, for people of color within universities, uh, Manor, Manners, uh, is an organization, uh, minority agriculture, natural resource students. I'm not getting that. I'm, I'm sure I didn't get that acronym quite right because manners is so easy to remember. <laughs> it's uh, hard for me to remember what it spells out. But there are organizations uh, and conversations that exist already. One of my favorite hashtags on Instagram is black people who hike. I mean, come on, <laughs> I mean, who can't get behind that? And, you know, so there's, so we just have to, it, what I'm trying to say is the good news is we don't have to start from scratch and reinvent the wheel. We need to plug into the resources that are out there and intersect the conversations that are going on. And, and that will lead us to solutions. Because I will say that to have solutions that will, uh, that will really empower gender and racial diversity, we need to have the stakeholders at the table that are most impacted by those issues. You need to, you know, the, the people that have the problem know the answers. So we need, to do the, we need to do the engagement before we start solving the problems. Well, this has been an incredible conversation, Katie. Uh, thanks again for being a part of this. Uh, do you have any wrap-up thoughts for us? No, I just appreciate it, Kyle. And uh, yeah, this is, it's, how, it's just enjoyable to talk at this level and to be able to think very personally about where we are in forestry today. It's an exciting time and I've enjoyed my career you know, to this point and hope more is to come. Yeah, well, I see you as a superhero within the forestry world. So I'm so honored that you uh, took a little bit of time to sit down and, and subject yourself to five questions for the forester. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kyle. Well, another huge thanks to Katie Fernholtz for taking the time to talk with us. And uh, hopefully you all enjoyed that uh, segment as much as I did. It was, it was, uh, there was a couple of breakups in my, in my mic because I was probably laughing too hard or getting too excited by something that Katie had said, but it was just such an honor to, uh, to be able to interview her and learn more about her story and her views on the forestry community. So Eli, for you, what were some, some of the takeaways from uh, learning from Katie? Man, there was just so much there, Kyle. Uh, it was such a, <laughs> such a good conversation. She talks a mile a minute and uh, uh, has so, so much energy. There was really a lot there. Some of the things that stuck out with me, I, I love the idea of, you know, she talked about needing all hands on deck. Everybody from the feller buncher operator to the inventory forester to the log hauler and many others uh, working together on behalf of the sector. As well as the people in the office. Absolutely. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I just love that idea. I think, you know, so often uh, there, there are, there are uh, issues that divide us and, and, and we see, you know, it's, it's easy to lose sight of the fact that we're all on the same team. And I, I just really like that idea. Kind of related to that or, or, you know, the idea that we're, we're all in it together is, is some, some basic ideas. You know, she talked about, look, we're managing natural systems. 
And in a lot mm-hmm. of cases, I mean, yes, we have plantation-oriented uh, production-oriented forestry, which is important, and not to take anything away, but a lot, the vast majority of the forest land that we're managing in Minnesota is composed of, you know, natural plant communities that are functioning, not identically to the way that they always have, things always change, but we're managing natural communities uh, and doing our best to preserve all of the pieces and parts of those communities and also to derive some value. I mean, we need wood products and we need uh, clean water and places to recreate and all of these other things. And one of the things that I find so uh, inspiring and, and so cool about forestry is that, you know, we're, 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 we're different from a lot of sectors in that rather than needing to destroy some natural space in order to create some other kind of space, in forestry, we're really working with it. We're working with these natural systems in order to achieve the, uh, the benefits and the outcomes that, that yeah. we like. And, I, you know, and- she reminded us of that and... I, I, and I think I like she brought that. up the idea of regenerative agriculture, right? Or is that something else I've been she listening did. to? She did. Yeah, no, that's and, right. She was from an organic farm family yeah. and talked a bit about that. So what's, I think what's so important for us to remember within the forest community is that, that sometimes maybe we need to market that that's what we're doing. That's what basically we've been doing for at least the past 50 years, ever since the cut and run of the logging boom. I think we've basically been practicing regenerative um, forestry and, just Absolutely. not having that, not having that tagline has left the idea in, in maybe the broader public's eyes that managing for economics equal is equated with managing for exploitation or that it's exploitative somehow. That was a huge take home for me is I, this is a thought that's been rumbling around in my brain about why, why are there still some negative attitudes towards harvesting? And I can see those in myself in myself at times too. And I think it comes from that idea that um, managing for production is equated with managing as exploitation. And so I was really appreciative of her, her uh, willingness to kind of dig into that idea a little bit more and uh, has helped me to think, oh yeah, that's not what we're doing. We're, we're demonstrating, as she said, demonstrating our love for these things by trying to better understand them. And then we're also demonstrating that we're valuing them within our society and how society works by assigning a monetary value and being okay with that, not seeing that as, and not equating that with exploitation, I think is a really important mental shift um, for me personally. And I think that that would be something to explore uh, within broader cultural realms as well. Yeah. Any other other things that you uh, big takeaways? Well, the, the last thing you and I have talked about a bit, and it's part of the reason that we're here on this podcast. But you know, she talked about uh, the importance of taking care of yourself. You know, the importance of uh, of of inclusivity. She talked about the many situations in which she found herself as the only woman in the room or the only person who looked like herself, and and the importance of uh, really being intentional about. Um, you know, caring for herself, doing doing what she needed to do to 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 feel um, present and to contribute um, in in the face of that. And you know, we're that's always true. That that kind of approach is important all the time. But the idea of self care is something that's been a little bit more on our minds now. I, I hope on a lot of people's minds as we deal with the things that are changing around us now with COVID nineteen and new work arrangements and it's so much harder now to see our coworkers. and yeah there might be some coworkers that we're happy not to see every day but on the for the most part i think 
a lot of us really miss seeing our coworkers every day. And we, mm-hmm. and we, as time goes by, I think we need to recognize that, um, you know, we're all facing some challenges. We need to, we need to be a little bit more intentional about taking care of ourselves. And I, I just like that she put that out there. I like the way that she framed that again, and, you know, talking about it in a slightly different context, but that, really resonated with me um, for, for the times we're living in now. Yeah, definitely. And I think you brought up uh, that isolation sometimes can um, come when we walk into a meeting room and she had a, uh, you brought up as we were um, talking about the, what we were going to talk about before we actually started recording, you brought up a great line from her that sometimes it's not you, it's them. (laughs) Which I'm not sure if that necessarily relates directly to what you're saying there, but the, the, that sense of isolation can be in the current moment during COVID, but it can also be how we feel when we walk into a a new physical space and we're like, Oh no, everybody looks different than me. Or if it's, um, everybody seems different, but uh, her line of sometimes it's not you, it's them is a uh, helpful little tool. She gave a lot of, I, I'm glad I pushed her on some logistics things because I think she's not only a big dreamer, but um, is has been in the field long enough to think about how to go about logistically doing things like service and when you're feeling isolated or when you're feeling um, separate from the group or other things, she just offered so many good points on logistics of how to get through these challenging situations or certain challenging situations. So again, thanks Katie for, uh, if you're listening, hopefully you are, uh, for being willing to uh, share yourself with the podcast and what you've been learning about. Any wrap up thoughts, Eli? No, no, I think we're good. All right. Well, I'll see you again in a couple weeks. Sounds good, Kyle. Camp 8 is produced by the Sustainable Forest Education Cooperative and supported by the University of Minnesota College of Food, Agricultural, and Natural Resource Sciences, the University of Minnesota Extension, and the Cloquet Forestry Center. Thanks for tuning in and keep in touch.